Amen. Well, it is Christmas, and as you know, and um, we're, my topic for this Christmas, the, the theme has been, this changes everything. And last week, we, we really focused on the this, what changes everything. God himself, the infinite, eternal God of space, time, dimension, the, the one and only Lord, the King of all heavens and earth, he moved into our neighborhood. He came to live near us. He took on human flesh uh, to be near us, to be with us, to, to identify with us and to save us from our sins, we're told. That is what changes everything. And, and the question this week is, for who? Or for whom? Who is, did he do that for? Who is Christmas for? That is the question for today. And the answer, I've, I've studied it very hard and done a lot of research. I've almost, you could, not too much to say that it's kind of become a, a research topic of my life, honestly. I, I study it continually. And what I have discovered is this. Christmas is for beautiful people who like to wear flannel and for them to fall in love and live happily ever after. That is who Christmas is for. It's clear. Uh, the message is, is, is loud and clear through Hallmark and, and every other channel. Hallmark doesn't deserve to be singled out. Every channel knows this. Christmas is for beautiful people. And it's a little bit, you know, the great mystery of Christmas is why these charming, beautiful people are alone in the first place. But we'll let them deal with that, right? Luckily, the Bible tells us a completely different story. The Bible tells us that Christmas is for those who mourn. Christmas is for those who are broken. Christmas is for those who have been abused and, and shamed. Christmas is for those who have sinned greatly and who, who don't feel like they should be able to show their face in public. Christmas is for those who are grieving and are sad and lonely. Christmas is for those whose lives have been disrupted. Essentially, Christmas is for everyone who has been bruised and broken by life, whether by the sins themselves have committed, the sins other people have committed, or maybe just by, by this, this thing we call death that is just working throughout um, the world, throughout the planet, throughout creation, and is corrupting every bit of it. Uh, whatever it be the reason, Christmas is for those who mourn in Zion. Christmas is for the broken and the bruised. And Jesus has come to give them a healing communion. Communion, a union, him joining together with them, him not being ashamed to call them brethren, but healing. He finds us in our lowest places, but he doesn't leave us there. He heals us. He makes us whole. Uh, we see this throughout the scriptures, but one of the places we see it the most clearly is actually in his genealogy. And the genealogy of Matthew, um, if, if no one's ever read it to you before, it sounds very monotonous. And it almost puts you to sleep. It will actually put you to sleep. I, uh, because it's just this rep repetition, right? Begot, begot, Abraham begot, Isaac begot. It's like um, I used to, I still do, listen to these things called uh, sleepscapes. And it's these, these audio things you put on to put you to sleep. And one of them, uh, it goes over every color of blue, every, every version. And so it's like 
powder blue, cobalt blue, aqua blue. I don't know how it ends. I've never gotten to the end. It works, right? It just puts me right to sleep. And and if you're not careful, this section of Matthew will put you to sleep, the very first section. And, and, And Matthew knew that. He's like, man... I mean, people in the first century, they're going to love this stuff because they love genealogies. But in about 2,000 years, people are going to be going to sleep. And so he put some, some bright, shining, flashing lights in there, red lights, to say, stop. Notice, these people don't, they don't usually show up in genealogies. Notice this. And that's who we're going to pay attention to today. Please stand as we read God's Word. Matthew chapter 1, we're going to read the first six verses, and then we're going to skip down to 18 through 21, because I don't want you to fall asleep. The word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, and the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Hmm. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Hmm. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. All men are like grass, and all of our glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. Man, if you could pick your genealogy, wouldn't that be fun? We all know the saying, right? You can pick your friends. You can pick your nose, you can't pick your friend's nose, and you can't pick your family, right? And that's, that's the, one of the messages of Christmas. You're, you're, you go home to the family you got. You didn't pick them, right? And you have the genes you have, and, and that's, you just didn't get to pick that. Uh, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. If I could pick my genealogy, who would I pick? It's a fun question, right? I mean, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he'd be a good father, has some good genes, I think. I don't know if I want him to raise me, but I want his genealogy. And maybe, I don't know, Jackie Joyner, Kersey, maybe, I don't know. I don't know, maybe, maybe Whitney Houston. She was good looking. I don't Somebody good looking and strong and, and, and talented. Like, I want to be able to, right? You, we would pick those kind of people. I don't want to be famous. Being famous doesn't seem like it's that fun, but it would sure be nice to be six inches taller and a whole lot stronger and not shaped like a pear. I mean, that would be, those things would be nice. But, uh, but that's not who Jesus went after. There's only one person in the history of the world. If we believe the Bible, which we do, then there's only one person in the history of the world who got to pick his genealogy, who was guiding history, who was providentially guiding and, and, 
and governing all, th- all people in their actions. And so he got to pick his genes. And he picked some very odd people. And we're going to talk about them and what they, they teach, teach us. And specifically, he inspires Matthew to make sure that Matthew includes four women to, to, to shine out as bright lights, women that would not be included in typical genealogy. That's, that's not how genealogies were, were traced. But, but, but God wants us to see something special about Jesus through these women. The first one is Tamar. Now, if you've never read the Old Testament as an adult, I need you to buckle up, okay? Because the story of Tamar is awful. It is awful. There's a lot of Old Testament stories that are awful, and we kind of just wash right over those. Um, and, and Tamar's is, is one of the worst. All we know about her is that she was married to the son of Judah, and he was evil. That's all the Bible tells us about it. He was so evil that God took his life. Now, there's a lot of evil people in the Old Testament that God did not take their lives. But whatever it was about this guy was so repugnant to the Lord that God took his life. And guess what? Tamar got blamed. Can you imagine living in a world where husbands were evil and women got blamed? That would be shocking. Glad we don't live in that world. And so it was the duty in a, in a world where there were no banks, there's not a lot of capital, the only capital you have is land, and, and if, you don't have, if you're not connected to a man, you don't get land. Uh, it was, it was uh, Tamar's brother-in-law owning his job to give her a son so that she would have someone to take care of her as she got older. And Onan, we're told... grown-up version, but, you know, not graphic. Y'all know how babies are made. Uh, Onan went into her tent uh, and spilled his seed on the ground. Now, um, what does that mean? It means he made use of her. He enjoyed her company. He abused her. He exploited her. But he had no intention of giving her a child. And guess what? She took the blame. And God was so angry about what Onan was doing, he struck him down. And Judah, being the very typical sinful man, blamed Tamar and sent her away. Um, you see, that, that, that family tradition, being part of the human family, of blaming the abused victims for what they suffered, that's an old, old thing. It's old been around forever and it's still around and what we know from that those sins is it just terrible shame comes upon the 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 abuse victims the victims feel like they are unworthy they feel like they have been seen their nakedness has been seen and they have been treated like trash and they begin to believe that about themselves and it's an awful sin it's awful the results, the shame. Shame is, shame is different from guilt. Guilt says, I did something wrong. But shame says, there's something wrong with me. And because these, these 
people have been seen and they've revealed themselves and all their, their, their vulnerability and their nakedness and they've been treated like dirt, in that position, they feel terrible shame. And I want to just pause here for a second and, and let you know and make sure you're aware that the world is screaming two messages to us at all times when it comes to sexuality. One message is that it's sacred, that you, that you cannot you know, touch someone or, or force anyone to do anything that they don't want to do because if you do that, you leave lasting scars and you should be, you should be punished for that. And the other message, the world is screaming equally loudly, I would say even louder, is that it's inconsequential. Have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Explore your body. It's just one big party. No consequences. And I I want you to, to see and feel how those two things could not be more opposite. They could not be more contradictory. Either it is important and it... And it pours out this, pulls out this vulnerability from us so that when we reveal ourselves to someone, we are entrusting our very identity to them. And, and the way they treat us in those situations will really reflect back on how we see ourselves or it's an inconsequential game. And the, the Bible's message, and honestly the message of anybody who's ever been hurt, and everybody who's ever experienced it, you know, it is powerful. And it is real. And to be mistreated in those situations results in powerful, scarring shame. And the beautiful news of the gospel is that Jesus comes from and for people like Tamar. Jesus comes from and for people like Tamar. When I was a, a campus minister at Mississippi State, I had just the sweetest, most creative uh, girl in our ministry. And uh, she taught me a lot. And I just, I really just, all, every ounce of my fatherly um, uh, empathy just was poured out upon her. I just really loved her. And uh, she, she was special and, and she, she knew the Lord and her eyes would sparkle when she would talk about him. And she, um, she had a terrible history. Her, her grandfather had abused her awfully, just awfully. And it caused her wires to kind of be crossed up when it came to sexuality, and she really struggled with that her whole life. I think she, she may still be. And so um, we just kind of walked through that together. I didn't know enough at the time to refer to someone else. I just kind of did my best. And uh, one night I was preaching on uh, how Jesus identifies uh, with, with us, and, and in, through his suffering, through his crucifixion, he, he heals every one of us of, of whatever our scars may be. I was really p- pushing down on that verse in Isaiah 53. By his scars we are healed. And she came running up to me as soon as the sermon was over, and I was like, oh, no. I didn't account for you. What am I going to do? And she's like, oh, wow, we got to talk. And so the next day we got together to talk, and, and her eyes were big and and filled with tears and she said thank you so much for the first time I understand that Jesus knows my pain and I said what are you talking about and she said he was crucified naked he knows what it feels like to be seen he knows what it feels like to be scorned 
He knows my pain. And I want you to know that, that Jesus does not shun you, but he embraces you. He knows your shame, and he takes it away. He's come for the Tamars of the world who've been abused by other people's shame and sin. And he's come for the Rahabs of the world who, frankly, have just abused themselves. Rahab, what in the world is she doing? Rahab, if you don't remember, lived in Canaan. Canaan was the region that was so filled with, with evil and iniquity that God was waiting until their iniquity was full and then had them exterminated. Okay, so the whole nation, bad. Put, put them under the rubric of bad, right? Jericho was the worst town in Canaan. It was so evil, God said, I'm going to take care of this one myself. And I don't want you to touch anything they've touched. Everything they've touched is polluted. You give it to me. So Jericho, under the rubric of Canaan, bad, right? Rahab was from the wrong side of the tracks of Jericho. She was a prostitute in Jericho. That's the lowest rung. That's as far down as we get. And it's actually kind of funny because it just blows people's minds and they try to do gymnastics. I, I, I was a teaching assistant for the professor who taught uh, biblical ethics in seminary. And uh, we had a question on a test about Rahab. Because get this, people really get tangled up over Rahab lying to the other Canaanites. Like, you know, they came looking for the, the spies and she lied to them and says they went one way when they actually went the other. And people get all tangled about that. I'm like, and, and I got to grade the test. And I was like, guys, they... I think she sinned worse than that that night. She was a prostitute. And I'm pretty sure the spies sinned worse than that that night because they went to see her. So can we be big boys here? Can we, can we admit what's obviously going on here? She was wicked. And yet, God rescues her and doesn't say, okay, I'm going to save you, but you're going to be kind of in the back you know, would you mind being, you know, I'll tell you what we'll do with you, Rahab. We're going to put you in the nursery. So you're a member of the church, but nobody's ever going to see you. Is that okay? No, he puts her in Jesus' family. He gives her a husband. He gives her children. He gives her grandchildren. And he says, do you see what kind of God I am? No one is too sinful for me. No one is too far beyond my reach. No one has gone too far. I come for people like her. Rahab. Rahab then was the, the mother of, of Solomon, who was the mother of, of Boaz, married to Ruth. Ruth. Jesus didn't only come for the, those who have been abused by sinners or who have abused themselves, but Jesus comes for Ruth. If you've never read the, the book of Ruth, I, I would encourage you to read it. It's just terribly sad. It is just a terribly sad four chapters of the Bible. It's really not the story of Ruth. It's the story of Naomi. Naomi uh, was Ruth's mother-in-law. Naomi and her husband were, were Israelites, and a famine came throughout the land, and they didn't have any food. That's number one, right? Like a famine. Can you imagine living through a famine? I mean, really, we can't, can we? I mean, if Whole Foods doesn't have the, the cotton candy-flavored grapes, 
I'm like, what's the deal? What's your problem? I mean, you know, it's not enough to have grapes. I've got to have the right kind of grapes. Actually, I don't like those grapes. Every time I say something from up here, somebody's going to be like, go go buy me 40 dozen things of grapes. Like, don't. I do like grapes, but not those. Um, but, you know, we don't know, we don't know deprivation. Can you imagine, like, waking up hungry, your kids are asking you for something to eat, you've got nothing to give them. And you go walking. You just go out walking in the fields looking for, I don't know, baby tomatoes from last year's plants that haven't been stolen by the birds yet. Anything anything. And it was so bad, they, they, they went to Moab, they went to another land, they'd rather be refugees, just this um, scavenging the fields than, than, than starve to death. And while they were there, her husband died, which is a deep, deep sadness. And then her two sons die. There is a, I want you to, to feel that, Okay. She's a real person. These are real humans. There's a, there's a sound. Man. There's a sound that I've only heard a, a few times in my life, but it's, it's eerily similar. And it's a sound that a mother makes when she walks into the room and sees her son's body in a casket. And it is the deepest most heartbreaking wail I've ever heard. And she did it twice. So sad. And in the midst of that sadness, God gives her a a faithful daughter-in-law named Ruth. And with Ruth, he walks through that sadness with Naomi. Brings her back to her home tribe, has Ruth find a, a, a farmer named Boaz who provides food for her and then ultimately provides a family for her. And at in the very end of the story, we see Naomi rocking a grandbaby, rocking a grandchild, and, and she's come through the darkness. And she has all the promises, not only the promises uh, for her, but the promises for us all right there in her lap, the, the great, great grandparent of Jesus himself. And through that, we see God's keeping his promise to walk with us through the darkness. That's not the God we want. We want the God who rescues us from the darkness. Right, right? I would rather be rescued from sorrow, I think, then walk through sorrow. But the, but the promise of Jesus is that he walks through it. Through the valley of darkness, through the waters, through the fire. He walks with us through it. And that's, that's the promise of Ruth. Yeah, this world, I mean, you're not going to escape it. You don't escape the brokenness of it. You're not going to escape the pain of it. But you don't have to go through it on your own. Jesus puts his arm around us. He comes and he, he is the descendant of Ruth to show us that he, he puts his arm around us and says, I'm, I'm with you. You're not alone. I will walk with you through this. He is for those who are abused and ashamed. He is for those who are sinful and, and broken. He is for those who are just grieving and, 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 and deep sadness. 
And we continue to read, and then we read that that David, King David, we all know him. He's the Elvis of the Old Testament. I mean, everybody knows David. David begot Solomon. We all know Solomon, writer of the Proverbs, wisest man to ever live. And then Matthew says it like this, by the wife of Uriah. It's almost as if he's, he's afraid to say, he's saying, I don't know, y'all may not have noticed the other three, but I'm making sure you don't miss this one, okay? David begat Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And so we all get out our old concordances, you know, who the heck's Uriah? He's a Hittite. That's weird. We go back into the Old Testament, and we see the, that uh, David had mighty men. There's these lists of mighty men, the, the champions, the heroes, the ones who, who defended David at all costs, who, who protected him, who time and again laid their lives on the line. And Uriah was one of the top six. I mean, he was in the list. And David betrayed him and stole his wife and committed adultery with her in order to cover the adultery, had his champion, his friend, killed. And it's just evil, and we want to we look at, at Jesus and go, but you picked wrong. You know, it's kind of like a fantasy football draft, and everybody's looking at you going, you took who? Don't, don't you know he's injured for the season? You took him? I mean, if you're going to pick one of David's wives, which I guess you have to, you had Abigail. She was great. She was beautiful. She was wise. She was righteous. Pick her. And Jesus looks at her and goes, but I didn't come for the righteous and the beautiful and the wise. I came for the Bathshebas. More specifically, I came for the Davids. And David is kind of the other, the flip side of Rahab. Because at least as far as we know, Rahab did all her sinning before she became a member of Israel. But David knew better. David had conquered Goliath. He had written half the Bible by this point. Not read it, he wrote it. He, he, he wrote, wrote, wrote the 23rd Psalm. He knew God better than any of us probably ever will. And yet, he sinned grievously. And there's a message there. I think, um, I think the message is this. It's, it's hard to come to church for the first time when you're just really convicted by your sin and you realize what you've done. But it's a whole lot harder to come back. It's a whole lot harder to come back after you've sinned and everybody knows it. After you've rejected it. And you wonder, first you have to overcome your own pride, but then you have to overcome all the, the guilt and the, the, the askance looks. and It's just hard. And that's, I think it's important for us because, you know, in the last five years we had the great what they call it, ex-evangelical exodus. And a lot of people quit coming to church in general. And we need to let people know it's okay to come back. This is a church for sinners. So as long as you didn't do anything besides sin, you're good. You know? 
as long as murder and adultery were the ceiling, you're good. Jesus is for you. He's here. And he does not shun you. He is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you a brother. He can forgive even the wicked sins of those who knew better. He can forgive even that. He's come for the, the, the sinners. And finally, the final woman we see in this passage is uh, Mary. And you're wondering, what has Mary got to do with this? Well, she has a lot to do with Jesus, actually. We don't know a whole lot about her, uh, and, and that's okay. But what, what's interesting about Mary is this. As far as we know, she did everything right. Okay, she, she, was, she was a virgin, and she was just kind of having her devotionals one night, and all of a sudden an angel appears and says, Hey, blessed are you. You're about to have a baby. And as far as we know, she did everything right and had her life completely wrecked. I mean, honestly, those of you who know, you know, having a baby kind of wrecks your life under the best circumstances. You know, let's just be honest. I mean, only, you know, only wrecks, you know, time, money, sleep, everything you care about. Uh, but you wanted the baby and you were happy with it, typically. An unexpected baby, wrecker, right? Um, an, un- an unwanted, unexpected pregnancy when you're in a culture of shame where women are bereft if they're not under the, the, the care of a man. I'm, it's just what, the way it was. Absolute wrecker. She did everything right, and he wrecked it for her. And sometimes that's how life works. I have a friend, uh, he used to come to church here, he moved since then, but um, when he was a student down at TU, he was a tennis player and was riding his motorcycle one night. I think it was in the rain. It was very dark anyway, and uh, he was just keeping all the rules and uh, driving his motorcycle home, and a car turned into him and just blew him up. It broke his leg, broke him in a lot of different places, and it was a, it was a long kind of drawn-out process for him to you know, get his bones healed and go, go to court and get his settlements and all that. And when it was finally kind of taken care of, the last day of court, the judge asked him to speak and said, so you're going to take this, this settlement money and go buy a new motorcycle? And he said, nope. And she said, why not? And he goes, the lesson I learned is sometimes you can do everything right and still end up totally wrecked. That stinks. Right? And some of you know that. Sometimes you just do everything right and you walk into the, you get called into the office one day and you're fired. Some days you do everything right and uh, you're, you're called to pick up your children, one of your children at the police station or you find out that one of your children is an addict. Sometimes you do everything right and you find out that your wife doesn't love you anymore. Sometimes you, 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 just, you, just, you just didn't deserve this. I've, I've heard that voice through tears over and over again. This isn't my fault. But I'm still wrecked. And what does God do? He gives Mary an aunt named Elizabeth. He says, go live with her. She's, she's ready for you. It's a place where you can stay. Nobody's going to shun you. Nobody knows you there. She'll take care of you. And then she goes to Joseph in the night, and Joseph is a righteous and just man. 
He says, Joseph, take care of her. This is from me. God doesn't just drop the bomb on Mary and then move on and say, good luck. But he provides for her in her wilderness, in her wreckage. He provides for her. Uh, right after Thanksgiving, Bianca and I went out to Phoenix for a couple of days to enjoy the sunshine. And, and uh, while I was there, I got to play golf at this beautiful golf course called Desert Forest. And it's, um, it's stunning. And as you might guess from the title, it's in the middle of a desert, which is crazy. How do they do that? And, uh, and while we were there, I was playing with a couple of friends from, of, of uh, Michael Boyd and, uh, and became just fast friends with them and, and, and really just felt like we'd known each other forever. After the golf game, went over to their house, ate pizza. Bianca and I stayed out till 10 o'clock. That's how close, uh, just how much fun we were having. 10, double digits. And, uh, and I, you know me, I'm always kind of thinking, like, why did the Lord do that? What was, what was that about? I'm always asking myself that question. What was that about? And um, in that particular, at that particular point, I'm saying, well, maybe I'm supposed to give them a book or connect them, you know, so-and-so's son. They go to Boise State. I know somebody in Boise, so I'm connecting them. And I don't know. I'm just always trying to wonder, like, what does God want me to do with these people? And the answer is usually nothing. And... Uh, and yesterday, as I was thinking back on it, I was thinking about God who provides. Where did God get his, his name, his, his reputation as being the God who provides? He provided sweet Hagar, a, a well in the desert. He provided the children of Israel food and water in the wilderness. Even I'm not dumb enough to miss this one, Right? He gave me a golf course in the desert. A stinking golf course. And friends. In a city full of strangers. And he's whispering to me and he's saying, Hey, guess what? Your life just got wrecked. I know. I got this. I'm going to take care of it. I'm not telling you what's coming next. You don't get to know that but I'm going to take care of you. That's the kind of God we have. And that's who Jesus came for. He came for those who wrecked themselves. He came for those who've been wrecked by abusers. He came for those who've been wrecked by death. And he just came for those who just got wrecked. He's here for you. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning amazed. If you were anything like we imagine you to be, you would be saying, hey, get yourself fixed, and I'm here for you. But you come to us in the wreckage, in our shame, in our guilt, in our sadness, in our grief, and in our wreckage. And you put our arms around, your arms around us and you say, I've got this. And I pray that you give us the grace to receive you and your son who is our provision. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.